0: What's up, man? Let's see what's going on with my touch. Thanks for 316K, even if it's just law enforcement surveilling me without a warrant again. As usual. For the past several years. So what are you guys up to out there? <laughs> no good. Are you calling on your secretaries of State to make sure that they don't put Diaper Donald on the ballot? Major motions. Oops. Live Fulton County Court hearing. Kind of slow, but... Um. Attention,
1: Americans. $6,400 is up for grads, and it's not a mistake as they come...
0: Disqualify.
2: Uh, DA Willis did send over a letter to um, Chairman Thompson requesting uh, certain things. Um, The tone of Mr. Sadal's letter led us to believe that, okay, perhaps we are missing something and we didn't provide something in discovery. So the time period that elapsed was due to...
0: No diaper dawn on the ballot. Uh, disqualification in every state now
2: our um, elaborate search to make certain that we didn't fail to provide or turn over something that that was in existence um, even as late as last evening um, we reached out to uh, chairman Thompson to make certain that uh, he didn't send over a response and we just missed it or or didn't receive it, so the answer is no we never received a response a written response from Chairman Thompson it does not exist um, and the only reason uh, for the the time lapse is because we wanted to search search and double search to make certain that our response was 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 an accurate one as it relates to uh, travel to uh, d c um, Chairman Thompson um, shared with 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 us um, during this conversation regarding the letter that his directives were that uh, we were allowed we being the district attorney's team would be allowed to have a conversation with his investigative team Um, we were not to share any information we were not to exchange any information We could have a conversation if there was something that we wanted to show them we were allowed to do it if they wanted to show us something we were allowed to to have a look at it but there were no photocopies of anything and there was no sharing of uh, tangible documents of any any kind
3: would you agree though that let's say this investigator had told you something that completely contradicted a statement that you've received from a material witness that you would already turned over to the defense that you would then have to document that in some way or turn it over as part of a brady obligation. I believe that. Yes, sir. All right. And, uh, are there any concerns here from what you spoke to, uh, with these investigators, uh, reaching that level?
2: Absolutely not. Judge. In, in fact, everything that was shared in, uh, in that conversation, um, was made publicly available through, uh, the Jan six committee when they released all of their documents. So everything that we talked about, everything that they shared was, was publicly released.
3: All right. So, Mr. Sadal, uh, turning back as I hear the response to part one, it's that they never got any kind of a formal written response from the chairman for them to disclose to you. And then on part two, yes, they did have a meeting and they spoke to investigators and they uh, maybe shared notes in the metaphorical sense, but they don't have anything physical in addition to what's already been turned over. Do you want any reactions to that?
4: Well, I take them at their word that there was no response. It would have been fine i have made this whole proceeding a bit easier if they had simply said in response to the several times that I had asked, we're looking for it, we'll let you know, as opposed to no response at all, or we're not going to, to respond to you at all. But the other part of this is, it appears that there was a extended communication conference in which information was shared. Now, Mr. Wade has not indicated whether or not they actually gave him documents or materials that they could review as opposed to just communications or conversations. So I'd like to know that. And to the extent that your honor has already hit on it as to whether or not there may be exculpatory evidence or otherwise potentially inconsistent Giglio type evidence. Our question would be, were, were there notes taken by their investigators, the DA's office investigators and or by the attorneys that are still in existence that could be supplied to the court for an in-camera examination to determine whether or not there is anything that the court would deem to be potentially disclosable under either its inherent power, which I've mentioned, or under due process considerations, exculpatory evidence, Brady Giglio. So that's that's my follow-up. All right. A
3: lot to unpack there but I'll just turn it back over to Mr. Wade uh, at face value
2: again, judge, everything that was shared, um, was released publicly through the Jan six committee. We don't have anything that they, they hadn't released publicly. There were no notes taken that, uh, we would, would okay. need to turn over or that has something in it other than what was publicly re-
3: released. Our and, investigator and, hadn't. Just released. to be clear, it's, it's, You're you're not claiming you didn't take notes, as I would think most lawyers would. But the idea is that you have notes and you believe those are work product. Yes. And you've reviewed those notes. And as of now, as the evidence stands, you don't see anything rising to the level of of Brady material. Nothing at all. All right, if I may,
5: that's the first um, point that Mr. Seydal made in regards to the state answering yes or no to his question the state still stands firm on, the state's not required to answer yes or no in regards to whether or not they received a letter from Mr. Thompson. What you're the state not required
3: is, to, but doesn't make the issue go away, right?
5: No, Judge, but I, the state is fully aware that if we did receive information and documents, that we should turn them over, and we have turned over what is public out there. So, I just want to be, I want the court to be clear that the state was not just not answering a question for Mr. Sadow. The way that it was posed is though they were looking for a communication attorney work product, which they're not entitled to. And that is why the state did not respond as Mr. Sadow wanted the state to respond. We responded that fine. yes, you have all evidence that you're entitled to through the discovery statute through through Brady and any exculpatory evidence that may be in the state's possession. All of those things have been turned over. All
3: right. And um, Mr. Sadow, I think I'd I take your point i understand where we are i don't think we need to dwell on this too extensively because it's unless it starts flaring up again and again
4: but and i I understand that your honor and and i and i appreciate that these kind of uh, disputes so to speak do not need the court to waste its time dealing with that's something that counsel should be able to handle if i may ask one other question were the investigators from the da's office or the attorneys when they were in conference when they were with the J six J six committee, uh, or members of the committee or their staff, were they permitted to view any videos that have not been made public? Answer is no, jess
3: All right, all right, Mr. State. if you ever uh, receive any other indication that that is not the case, you can renew your motion and take it up at that time. However, at this point, based on What's been alleged in the original motion. It seems like that is moot as to the. Uh, videos presented to the grand jury and as to the supplemental part, it it seems like those concerns have been addressed with the caveat of. Could have been done in an email, perhaps, but we'll see. Perhaps Uh, All right. so anything else, Mr. Say now then? Yes, your honor.
4: I was. Told via email that all the lawyers were told via email. THAT YOU WOULD BRIEFLY DISCUSS THE no- NOTION OF ADOPTING CODEFENSE CODEFENDANTS MOTIONS SPECIFICALLY I HAD ASKED IN REFERENCE TO THE MOTION TO DISMISS AND disqualify FILED BY THE DEFENDANT ROMAN'S COUNSEL ON JANUARY 8TH OF 2024. Um, I HAD SENT AN EMAIL ALONG ASKING FOR LEAVE TO ADOPT AT A LATER TIME does the court want to take that up now, or do you want to take that up at the end?
3: No, I think we can address that now. Uh, so I'm I'm remembering that the, uh, just kind of addressing the adopted motions, because they've gone every which way here to try and impose some sense of um, order on this, is that the conclusion have been you can adopt a motion but that doesn't necessarily entitle you to argument on it but then i recognize when you have a, a drop dead motions deadline you don't necessarily have time to adopt the code of because they just got filed simultaneously so in essence are you asking just to adopt it uh, on its face or are you looking to supplement it and go much further than where it already is well uh, essentially, essentially to, one- to join
4: counsel at the table Well, actually, neither one at this point. Uh, This is the first motion in which there have been allegations of fact made, which deal directly with our opposition counsel. Uh, Suffice it to say that they are salacious and scandalous in nature, and I don't have a factual background that I can state to the court supports that at this point. I'm leery of moving to adopt motions that make such allegations without having a better understanding or substantiation of the allegations. What I'm trying to do here, one thing to adopt a motion that brings up a matter of law, this is different. I was hoping the court would give me the opportunity uh, when the DA's office responds to that motion to see what the factual disputes are what the allegations, whether they are disputed otherwise or whether they are supported, to give me the opportunity within a few days of that response by the DA's office to make the determination whether I wish to adopt. That's specifically what I was hoping to accomplish with regard to that specific motion. Otherwise, I should be able to adopt motions right away like I did. There were certain things that were filed on January the 8th by uh, code defendant counsel, and I immediately adopted those on January the 9th. But this is different. That's why I put it to the court as I have.
3: All right. So, obviously, my plan with this was uh, to allow the state an opportunity to respond before setting a hearing date. And as for the date of a hearing, um, we have to work around the other trial calendars in this docket. So, I think early February would be the, um, the soonest that would happen. And so I think that would give you some time, Mr. Saydown to consider any adoption if you need to. Um, and. Uh, I, again, I'm not a, a, a opposed to just a merely adopting it um, to preserve the issues, if that's something you do want to join. So uh, to that end, I would say you do have some some leeway there. But at the, at the moment when we've got a response from both sides, we're ready to set it for a hearing. What I'm trying to avoid is dragging it out because other parties want to piggyback and do their own separate um, investigation. If you will, there is a motions deadline. and We're trying to stick to it.
4: I I I understand that your honor. Yes, uh, uh, totally. All I'd ask for then is if you'll give me two days to adopt after the response, I need no additional time after that. All right. May I just briefly address that? sure and um mr gillen for the record Uh, our motions are due february the 5th right now we are looking at that motion that which has been filed we're going to do our own investigation and determine whether or not we're going to adopt that motion or supplement that motion just want you to know that that's what our timetable is all right understood thank thank you you. Uh, does the
3: state want to add anything
5: um, you. Yeah.
4: All right. Anything else, Mr. Saydown? No, I take it the court will give me at least a couple of days after the response. I'll get it in immediately. Yeah. All right.
3: Yeah, like I mentioned, I don't know when the state is planning to file a response, but uh, at some point we will have to set up for a hearing. And right now, again, like I said, uh, just based on the schedule, we're targeting early to mid February. So I would Imagine if there's going to be a response, it would, it would be before that time. All right, if that is all, uh, Mr. Seda, I think we're going to turn to Mr. Giuliani. And unless you feel to stay on if you want to. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay, so uh, we could have counsel for the record, your first appearance for the record here.
6: Uh, Alan Stockton for uh, Mayor Giuliani and John Esposito and David Lewis, I think, are attending virtually and I think the mayor may be watching on uh, YouTube. OK,
3: all right. The mayor, may uh, Well, welcome, Mr Stockton, um, I, I saw two motions pending that we could take up today and address. I, I wonder if we could start. One of them seemed a bit more straightforward than the other. So your motion asks for interviews with the co-defendants who have already pleaded guilty. As, as I understood it, there was nothing um, prohibiting that, especially from counsel. If you need clarification on that we can give it. but the your motion goes a step further and says you are want to compel interviews. And I think we've got some clear case law in Georgia that says I can't do that.
6: Judge, I, I think we can take this out of your hands for the time being. We are welcome uh, to hear that. been talking with the state um, and, and on this issue anyway. Would the, if the court saw it our way that you could uh, justify compelling them to uh, discuss the case with us, but uh, what the state and uh, Mayor Giuliani's team have uh, agreed to is that we would just put that issue
0: no just put no in that
6: and wait. We believe that we'll probably be able mayor. To talk with these people. Um, the only issue we've, uh, we're dealing with, um, it was a, yes, uh, the only di-
1: issue we really have is the state is wanting to either. He is insurrectionist.
6: Be present or have recorded any interaction we have with these co-defendants that have already pled, uh, Judge. My understanding there's a. Case Shields versus State. The closest thing I I found, and basically what that's a 264 Georgia Appeals uh, 232, and basically what that just kind of pr- provides in the periphery is that if we were wanting to speak to one of these co-defendants and they would refuse to speak to us without the state being present, that's that's that uh, defendant's or that witness's prerogative. But uh, otherwise we would submit it. It wouldn't be proper for the state to be part of our investigation, just like we weren't part of theirs. Uh, We weren't there when the proper videos were made. We we didn't get to be a part of that. Uh, But that's the only issue I believe we've got on this is, Uh, whether or not the state is entitled to be present and or record or have a recording of that.
3: Well, I think we end up coming full circle then. I don't know if we can kind of neatly avoid the main issue, which is uh, my understanding from the, stretching back from the Georgia Supreme Court, was the state can't deny you access to a witness, and they shouldn't be instructing their witnesses not to talk to you, Uh, but that the ultimate decision rests with, the witness that themselves so if they um, and that the witness can set any conditions or preconditions that they want Correct. so if,
6: if, if any of these folks want the state to be there um, and that's not our issue I think they have to be yeah no that's not our issue our issue is the state is saying they want to be there sure and we don't want the state to be there unless the witness requires it
3: sure uh, that's my understanding of, of how it works and in, in the state of the law but I'm willing to hear if uh otherwise well,
6: that, that's all i have for my position on okay there. let's see where we are
7: um i yeah. was um, for the state um very briefly I, we do insist on that condition of either the state being there or um having these videos recorded Mainly for, we have bond, we have probation conditions, we have bond conditions, they're there for a reason. There's make sure that there's no uh, harassment, no influencing the witnesses, no intimidation going on. And these are measures that would be able to um, remedy and be protective of those purposes and still be uh, in line in conformity with those probation conditions and why they were imposed. Um, As to the video recording, I think there's a second. uh, purpose in that and that there's efficiency purpose. Uh, once they're recorded, we've got 15 defendants, you know, we don't want to have to subject these witnesses over and over again to interviews, and especially have to repeat themselves over and over again to each with to each defendant. So I think a video recording helps alleviate those concerns and also to help alleviate our concerns that they were being in uh, undue influence or intimidation because they know that we've video recorded and we turned over to the state. I, I think it's, you know, what what you're proposing
3: may be the most efficient thing and certainly not completely unreasonable, but I mean, I'm just, I'm wondering if this is just a kind of the necessary baggage of having a multi co-defendant case, uh, you know, the, the, based on the nature of the questions a defense counsel might ask a witness, they could consider that as re- revealing their strategy or where their focus is going to be and, um saying that one interview is going to be able to satisfy all every single other co-councils may be a bit too optimistic as well everyone might need to be going down a different uh road so i, mean, I, I, can, I can see the point i don't think that's going to be one that uh, we're going to be able to
7: satisfy there i don't think we need to worry yet because there's been no discovery violation turned over the uh, proper recordings and made available. These witnesses given their uh, contact information and there's okay. been. As to these bond, these probation conditions okay. there's been no threats so that we've. Revoked bomb. Sure. So right and to the state's
3: other point of, well, we have these um, conditions of probation and we need to make sure they're not violating them. Uh, that's that's a fair point, but. W- there has to be some kind of limiting principle. The state didn't ask as a condition of probation that they're monitoring all conversations of of any of these defendants who have pleaded and uh, I suppose there's a heightened risk if you will when you're dealing with a co-counsel but um, I think there always has to be some level of professionalism and trust involved when we're dealing with officers in of the court so let me ask Mr. Stockton is this something Mr. Giuliani was planning to be sitting right there in
6: the room as you interviewed these people no not at all judge he he uh... Unless there is an apartment in New York, he he's not coming down here to interview or where these people reside at the time, um, Judge. And I don't think I've completely hit on this, but the main reason I filed this is in the colloquy, and when you were announcing your sentence, one of the things you said was, uh, "This was just on uh, defendant uh, Jenna Ellis." No, Diaper Donald on the
0: ballot.
1: may get stuck with dictator
6: at the same time i can see somebody that's wanting to comply with the letter of this might need some clarification from this court that it is okay for them to uh, discuss this with not the defendants themselves, but with the defendants uh, representatives. All right, uh, well, just uh, again,
3: anticipating that this may be a concern with other co-defendants as well. I think it's worth, I'll, I'll file a. A brief kind of order and response again. I, I think I need to reiterate that the. The black letter law here is that a witness can't be compelled to speak with uh, defense counsel. If you want to raise that by later down the road, if we know they are and you think you have case law. In the alternative, we can take a look at that, but essentially a witness can't be compelled to have an interview. The witness gets to set the conditions. If they want the state there, I think the state gets to be there. If they don't want the state there, uh, I think they get to speak with you privately. And they're pretty much the ones uh, in control at that point. There weren't any other conditions as part of their sentencing that. Uh, proved otherwise, right? Um, all right. Is there anything else then we think we should we should clarify there or needs to be addressed? So then we move on to Mr. Giuliani's uh, more substantive motion.
6: Mr. Judge, I think we can handle this even quicker.
3: Okay, I'm I'm um, I remain cautiously optimistic.
6: Uh, Judge, this this was filed by Mr. G- Mayor Giuliani's prior counsel uh, on September the eighth of twenty three. Shortly thereafter, they withdrew from the case. The court set down the motions hearings on pretty much everything except this one. So the state hadn't responded at that point. I filed a motion for a a hearing on this, and very quickly the the court set down this date, and the state has not had an opportunity to respond yet. Um, In talking with the the prosecution judge, what we've discussed, if it pleased the court, uh, to begin with, a lot of this has already been taken care of in argument. You'd just be hearing redundancy. Uh, but there are three areas that I don't believe have been addressed, and all three of those areas deal with the uh, overt acts that occurred in other states, <laughs> and one of them had to do with equal protection, one of them had to do with uh, Brady issues, and the other had to do with jurisdiction. and uh, talking with the state, uh, they were going to, if it pleases the court, no argument today, them uh, present their side of it in writing to the court and then maybe give me if I need to respond another 10 days or so to take care of that.
3: All right, and then we just handle it through the briefing? Yes, Judge. All right. And just as just by way of kind of focusing in the briefing, Mr. Stockton, on the equal protection issue, just when I was kind of making a preliminary look through it, I want to make sure I understand the argument. It's that is is it, is the concern simply other states could prosecute your client for the same predicate act.
6: Yes, Judge. And um, for instance, argument uh, Georgia, you can't be sentenced for a RICO, the RICO and the uh, the predicate act, but in Florida you can.
3: there's just sure Georgia. So, but, but how does that become a double jeopardy issue if all the states are separate sovereigns? And couldn't he be convicted in every single state all 50 states. If, if there was an issue without any double jeopardy concerns whatsoever.
6: You may have point judge. I mean, there, there may be something to that, but.
3: Uh... Alright, well, that's something to focus on in briefing then. Thank you judge. all right. OK, then uh, we'll take that up on the papers. I guess since we are all here together still. I can open it up to general housekeeping for anyone, everyone who's still here and with us.
1: Certainly, our Honor. Catherine okay. Bernard here for Jeffrey Clark. And we it. had adopted President Trump's motion to compel, and it looks like the court has ruled on the... At this point, the representations of the district attorney's office that they have not been given access to any uh, classified or private information that is not publicly available, but that the court is willing to revisit that ruling should any additional information become available. Sure. We understand that correctly and we did also uh, there has been quite a bit of uh, communication back and forth via email between the district attorney's office and so out of an abundance of caution, the district attorney's office had included some of our previous requests specifically for communication based on two e regulations and whether or not two letters had been received for uh, Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue. And so we did, out of an abundance of caution, flesh that out into a new motion to compel, simply filed on behalf of Mr. Clark. And we are prepared to take that up today. And I do have copies for the state. But of course, if the court would prefer to hear that at a separate time, we are available.
3: Right. So I think you filed that today. I wasn't able to read it. But obviously, we didn't notice it for today. So if the state's not ready to hear it, then I think we need to give them an opportunity to you know, digest that and respond. Uh, but perhaps we could at least make sure we understand, uh, and we're focused on the issues at hand. Well, actually, first let me just ask the state if they want to take it up today. In the in a, in a, in a, in a spirit of efficiency,
5: okay. we appreciate that, and the state, of course, of course, is willing to give us time. We will take all the time that, the course, is willing to give us.
3: Okay, how much time do you need? You
5: can hear whenever we set for the next. Since we're talking about moving forward, the next hearing date that the court has I would just say maybe not next Friday, it seemed
3: very jam-packed, but maybe the, the next hearing after that. All right. And, uh, on Ms. Bernard, I just want to, again, to focus the issues. That motion, we're honing in on the actual communications between counsel and the committee or the White House, right? It's not so much what Mr. Sadow was getting at in his motion to compel about what other evidence, documentary, or otherwise, Came As a result, you're looking for the actual communications that have occurred between the two entities, right?
1: Yes, Your Honor, particularly if there is anything in response to the request uh, for a TUI letter that we believe was made for both uh, Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue. It has been reported. We included as an exhibit to our filing uh, some of the media reporting that indicated that that request had been rejected. And we do believe that that would be material and relevant to Mr. Clark's defense
3: on as a defense of.
1: And your honor at, at this point, um, we, we believe that it would be material and relevant, particularly if Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue, who are the main witnesses, who we believe they are prepared to provide evidence against Mr. Clark. That is the case with his ongoing uh, proceedings within the District of Columbia. And so we believe that if they are not going to be available as witnesses, that will be a tremendous, that, that will be a, a tremendously important element of the case going forward.
3: Right, so... If an investigator is out there trying,
0: listening to this on my study, are trying today.
3: to put a subpoena in a witness's hands and they just can't find them. Is that something that you also think falls under Brady? Uh,
1: potentially, yes. I don't know that that would be the analogous situation here, since it does involve intergovernmental communications, uh, particularly with the individuals who uh, potentially are responsible for initially leaking the draft letter uh, that was. In, in late January of 2021. So again, we, we're we looking for the information, we're looking for at least a, a response from the district attorney's office as to whether or not they received anything back from the Department of Justice in response to that request.
3: Right, so I'll just, just give you my initial reaction as a preview to, you know, as, as the state gets its response in the hearing is that, I think the first aspect of it, it seems you, you were raising concerns or, or kind of building an argument about selective prosecution, right? And, and that has more of a, a legal hook, if you will. Uh, but the, the latter half of it was talking more about, just to boil it down, hey, we need a heads up of who could actually be able to walk through the courtroom and, and present evidence. That that was a, a, a kind of a more novel theory to me. So if, if you've got something else that kind of connects those dots, uh, I'd be welcome to hear it. But that by itself um, seemed like a bit of a stretch. So we'll take it up at the hearing and... Uh, open a, open the floor back up I don't know who's still uh, with us at this point or if there's anything else to address or if it's kind of petered out or where we are but anything else okay then we will stand adjourned and we'll see you uh, n- next friday thank you thank you Your Honor.
8: thank you,
0: thank you Your Honor. See, you don't want to be up a-
8: <laughs> Thanks so much for watching. We're only a few subscribers short of 2 million subs. Please subscribe right now to the Midas Touch YouTube channel for hey. free and help us grow this unappealing.
0: Diaper slapped down after losing big in court. Supreme Court drops major hint on Diaper Don's future. Diaper Don's failure to comply is big mistake. In court. Sicko Diaperdon screws himself with latest attacks. <clears throat> Let's see this one about major hint on his future. Please disqualify this motherfucking API traitor!
1: Supreme Court gave a big hint do.
9: as to what they're going to do in the Colorado disqualification case today. And let's talk about why I think they gave a hint as to what they're looking at. Uh, let's talk first. How does the Supreme Court work? Uh, I'm no expert uh, of, of Supreme Activist. Court uh, jurisprudence. I Mega have um, actually been to the Supreme Court. I've never appeared before them, but I am admitted in the Supreme Court. Mostly it's a ceremonial admission, but I am And Mm -hmm. but the way the Supreme Court works is typically there's only questions of law that they consider Ah! questions of fact. And the fact finding is, is for the lower court to develop and to find. Okay, so think about it. The lower court, the trial level court is where the facts come out and the facts come out through either witness testimony or evidence that is presented, and either the jury as the finder of fact, or sometimes a judge can be the finder of fact, especially if it's a bench trial. Uh, And that's how how it works. And and the judge is sort of the referee where they decide what is relevant evidence and what is admissible evidence. And so they will help develop the record where only, allegedly, where only appropriate and relevant admissible evidence comes in. And they are supposed to keep out prejudicial, inappropriate uh, hearsay and other, uh, other evidence that's not permitted to come in. And that's why the rules of evidence are so important. But the facts are the, what they are, and the record is what it is, and you're not allowed to expand on the record when you appeal. You're not allowed to expand with with more evidence or different evidence. Of course, there are exceptions, but this is typically how it, how it works. And the appellate court, typically, they they basically accept the facts and the findings of facts, and they see whether... Uh, the judge interpreted the law correctly, and they apply the law to the facts correctly. And so, so what exactly is the Supreme Court doing? And and the the what is strange? Okay, and so the Supreme Court could take years. Okay, by the time someone is convicted, like say if we 're talking a criminal case or a civil case it doesn 't really matter by the time there's there 's a finding in the lower court, it gets appealed to the middle to the middle appellate court and then to the Supreme Court. It can take like seven years between the time of the lower court or from the time that the case was initially filed to the time the Supreme Court decides because there is there is so much and so slow. So much stuff that happens, whether it's filing briefs or looking at the or ordering the minutes so that you have the record that you can re, that you can rely upon, or whether it is uh, like I said, a, 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 appealing in the middle appellate court, or then obviously going to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court only takes a tiny fraction of cases that are. That happen around the country, and a tinier fraction of cases that where people request that the Supreme Court take the case, they don't take most cases. And and so what you do is you petition uh, the court with a petition for certiorari, which is uh, a Latin phrase that basically means you're asking the court, the Supreme Court, to take the case, and and. The way you do it is you have to petition them, and then if they accept it, they usually tell you these are the issues that we're considering. This is the legal issue we intend to decide. They don't typically decide all of the legal issues, right? There's so many issues that, and so many things that a lower court will have will have. Um, decisions that they make, right? Whether it's whether certain evidence is admissible, whether there was enough evidence, whether uh, the jury instructions were accurate, whatever it is, there's a million legal questions that lower courts will decide in any one case. But the Supreme Court will tell you, typically, of all of those, these are the ones we are going to decide. And what's strange about the Colorado case, the Colorado Supreme Court case, is that they, the Supreme Court, didn't really clarify what they were going to talk about or what issues they wanted briefed and what they're going to decide. And George Conway, who is a conservative commentator and uh, he's he's very vocally um, against Trump, even though he's a Republican, he wrote an article in The Atlantic that I read that I thought was very interesting because what he was saying was, first of all, it's strange how quick it's not strange in a bad way, but it's unusual how quickly the Supreme Court is handling this. So so this doesn't typically happen, and it just goes to show how important they think this Colorado disqualification case is because Colorado and Maine have both decided that Trump is disqualified from being on the ballot Yay. based on the 14th Amendment Section yeah. 3 uh, insurrection Uh clause. And so, so that is the, that is the case that's there, just the Colorado one. And what, what George Conway said was it's unusual for the court to agree to review the case without specifying what the legal issues it intends to decide are because some, sometimes, oftentimes they do specify. And also interesting was once the, um, once Trump was taken off the ballot
0: and
9: in Colorado, I think that means, because, because he lost that. I think
0: that means they didn't take it based on any particular legal grounds. I think they're going to try to twist it to come up with something to get it thrown out. To throw it out because it's packed with Trump judges. And Bush judges, Republican activists, MAGA fucking judges who lied under oath that Roe v. Wade was settled law. Therefore, I agree with my running mate, AOC, that uh, they perjured themselves. They should be. They should uh, have to be. Um, should have to resign.
9: But... In Colorado, because because he lost that case. Actually, the case had to do with the Colorado Republican Party was uh, was the party that was um, that was that was involved in that litigation. They're the ones who petitioned the Supreme Court to take their case, and Trump later petitioned the Supreme Court to take his case. They didn't rule, the Supreme Court didn't rule on the Colorado Republican Party's uh, petition, only on Donald Trump's. And and what George Conway said is odd, is that usually they don't just take the entire case and all the issues uh, because of just the way they work and volume, et cetera. Uh, But here, what they did was they left it very vague. Um, And again, typically the way they do it is the the Colorado uh republicans their petition to the supreme court had three discrete questions of law because the way it works with the supreme court is the questions presented in your writ of certiorari or your petition for certiorari there there's a rule a supreme court rule that says it has to be short concise and and you you have to really kind of work on your questions of law, and that that's a really important part of your brief and, and a part of your petition. And so what did they do? They, the Colorado Republican Party, they had three discrete questions of law, and that's typically how it's done, and they just point by point. But Trump did something very unusual, and he only gave one question, and it wasn't very specific. And what he said basically was that the Colorado Supreme Court did the colorado supreme court err in ordering him excluded from the ballot question mark right did they er make an error but that's not really a question question of law right that's in some ways a question of fact um because the real question of law could be there's so many questions of law that he could have asked them to consider (laughs) or that that could be asked of them or that they might consider so so one of them is is one of the things Trump was arguing was, was the Fourteenth Amendment Section Three disqualification clause, says it has to, you can it's an officer uh, of the United States is is who would be disqualified if you are if you en- engage in an insurrection. Well, he has argued that he's not an officer, so that's one question they could determine it. Yeah, don't forget he, that in Colorado sure. the lower court held. That Trump engaged in an insurrection, but they held that it does that tr- that the presidency is not an officer. I personally disagree with that. I think if you look at precedent and text and and legislative history and uh, constitutional history, it's pretty clear. And you and you look elsewhere in the Constitution, it's pretty clear that it does apply to the presidency. Uh-huh. Trump argues that it's not, but they, he didn't specify that. So we don't know if that's one of the things they're going to talk about.
1: Um, I just got into a car accident and now I'm stuck with all these bills. What do I do? Luckily you're a oh, want you want to fall. Another, a-
9: another thing that Trump said is he didn't take an oath to support the constitution that the presidential oath is different, but of course he took a note to support the constitution that's kind of a ridiculous argument in my again in my opinion uh and so we don't know if that's going to be one of the issues they consider another one is does the 14th amendment section three is it self-executing that's a term or phrase that that we hear people refer to a lot and what does that mean that means does it uh, does it automatically disqualify congress need to pass a law in order to make that valid, or is it self-executing in and of itself? In other words, is it a political question uh, that the, requires an act of Congress? According to the, so the constitutional way I like to think scholars,
0: about it, Lawrence Tribe, and who's the other one who um, published an article in um law review journal that, yeah, it was, it was uh, self-enforcing and basically you're automatically if you engage in insurrection which he did and even the lower courts nobody is even contesting that that he engaged in insurrection so therefore he disqualified himself basically and the uh, uh, constitutional scholars wrote about that
9: is there are s- there are several things that disqualify pres- presidents in the constitution like you have to be 35 years of age. You have to have lived continuously in the United States for 14 years. You have to be a natural born citizen. Those are self-executing. You don't need Congress to pass a law to enforce that. If Trump were any of those things or not any of those things, then any secretary of state in any state could take him off the ballot, right? In fact, all of them would and have to. There are other things that that states very much can determine who can be on a ballot in a primary. So for example, the Maine Secretary of State said she took Chris Christie, she denied his application to be on the ballot because he didn't get enough petitions, signatures on his petition, which is something you have to do to get uh, on the ballot. So there's plenty of things they're allowed to do uh, and are required to do. And the question is, Mm -hmm. why is the 14th Amendment Section 3 any different? Shouldn't it be... Uh, self-executing like those other qualifications. And another question they could decide is, is it too difficult, you know, is it? Is it, what does it mean to engage in an insurrection? And one of the things George Conway said in this article was, look, the courts can determine the meaning of, quote, equal protection under the laws, which is Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, then they should be able to also determine what section three of the same amendment says and not require Congress to have to pass some law because engaging in an insurrection or providing aid or comfort there too isn't that complicated of a concept, so it shouldn't be a problem. Um, so, so that's going to be, it's, it's unclear what, what the Supreme Court's going to decide because they accepted Trump's petition, a very general question it's more a question of fact than it is a question of law. Whether or not he engaged in an insurrection, the court that found the, to the get court, it the lower court had a trial. It was it was a full yeah, trial, the and they found that he did. And so, yeah, we'll see how what question they actually uh, will will listen to or what they are, are thinking about. Uh, But today, what happened, and the reason I think it's a slight glean into what the Supreme Court is thinking, is they asked for, they requested the record from the Supreme Court of Colorado. So they want to see the record. It's no surprise. Of course, they want to see the record. I mean, that's part of what they will do. But I think it's a good thing that they requested it now. And it, I think it also shows that they're not just looking at this whole case from, fresh, from a fresh perspective anew, that they're going to look at the records, see what they decided, and hopefully accept the record, the facts, and not decide, again, did Trump engage in an insurrection, but accept that they found that he did. And then only decide what the law is. And that, that's what I think this means. Um, but again, we'll see. This is all moving so quickly, much quicker than anything else in the Supreme Court. Would ever, ever be. So hopefully they will also move the uh, immunity case just as quickly so that we can have a trial in Washington, D.C. I'm Karen Friedman agnifolo with Legal AF.
8: Hey, Mighty Mighty. Of this report, continue the conversation by following us on Instagram. She do not Instagram. She just, just what are you Instagram. Waiting for? Follow us now. Okay. What do you
0: know? Let's see, this is posted one hour ago. on, slapped down after losing big in court.
8: I know that Donald Trump is involved in so many lawsuits. (laughs) He's a criminal defendant in a lot of cases that we could uh, forget about some of these cases. But just here's an easy way to think about it. Whenever Donald Trump is the one bringing the case, He's the plaintiff. He loses. Whenever Donald Trump is the defendant he getting loses. sued or he having charges brought against him, he loses. that's a simple <laughs> reminder and Donald Trump now having to pay the attorney's fees for the New York Times in the amount of nearly $400,000. We're data-driven here, so let me be specific. Donald Trump was specifically ordered to pay $392,000 in sanctions against the New York Times. Uh, Donald Trump was represented by... Ding, 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 Alina Haba. You guessed (laughs) it in this uh, magnificent lawsuit that he brought against the New York Times. Uh, The uh, Judge Robert R. Reed, who previously granted the motion to dismiss by New York Times back in May 3rd. uh, We covered it then when the New York Times won uh, the dismissal based on uh, New York's anti-slap statute. Um, Judge Reed ruled again that all of the attorney's fees being requested by the New York Times are valid. $392,000 $392,000 uh, plus and some change awarded and the judge found that uh, this lawsuit was brought uh, and continued with no reasonable basis to do so. Um, specifically what New York law holds is that a defendant like the New York Times in an action involving public peti- petition and participation may maintain an action claim, cross-claim, or counterclaim to recover damages, including costs and attorney's fees, from any person who commenced or continued such action, provided that the defendant, in this case it was the New York Times because they were sued on a frivolous basis, provided the defendant, the New York Times, makes a demonstration that, quote, the action involving public petition and participation was commenced or continued without a substantial basis in fact and law mm-hmm. and could not be supported by a Sounds substantial Sounds like something Michael ar-
0: Cohen can also recuperate all his fees.
8: You meant for extension, make a profit modification, too. or reversal of existing law. Another way of putting Dick that, Donald, Donald Trump pretty much brought a frivolous lawsuit, ignored all of the New York precedent that you can't sue media companies for things like this. Donald Trump got that headline that he wanted with Alina Habba so she could say, we sued the New York Times, look how tough we are. But the same way a federal judge in the Southern District of Florida sanctioned Alina Habba nearly $1 million for advancing a cottonly frivolous RICO case against Hillary Rico
0: Clinton and, and several
8: other or dozens of other uh, defendants with no factual or legal basis. A judge here is holding that under New York's anti slap <laughs> statute, Alina Habba essentially violated all of the legal precedent, ignored it, and brought this <laughs> meritless case that got dismissed back in May. And now there is nearly $400,000. So I guess we can say to all of the MAGA supporters who Donald Trump grips, you've paid Alina Habba at this point. I think her legal fees for all this brilliant legal work that she's been (laughs) doing for Donald Trump is more than $3 million to date. It's probably approaching $4 million that's being paid to her to be literally the worst lawyer ever in american <laughs> history oh and, and by the way may i play you this clip right here this is tim Parlatori, donald trump's old lawyer in talking about a different case the new york attorney general civil fraud case where uh, alina haba has been representing donald trump tim Parlatori talks about how that case was made such a mess because Alina Haba does not know how to handle basic discovery. This is Trump's other lawyer, Tim <laughs> former lawyer, uh, just Duncan on Alina Haba. Here, play this clip.
9: Talk to me about, I mean, we, the counsel that's fair. Who is, do you think, you've been his attorney before, who's controlling this? I mean, is the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog? You know, when uh-huh. it comes to this
8: case, I think that. Um, in large respect, it's been kind of um, unled uh, for a while. I mean, I know earlier on, uh, when Ronald Fachetti was on it, he was handling it uh, appropriately. Of course, he unfortunately passed away. Uh, but you know, with Alina Haba handling Discovery, yeah, that's that's not you know something where I think anybody was really at the wheel. Uh, and so now you get into this trial where it does seem, does seem to me to be kind of a combination of. Building a record for the appeal
0: <laughs>
8: and putting out things into the media that are helpful to the campaign. What if ordinary people, just like you and me, could change the world with the push of a button? Meet Lomi. The world's <laughs> first Meat's kitchen appliance is bonus. <sighs> as well, on um, episode, the action that Donald Trump filed. Uh, it was also brought against and had numerous other causes of action as well, um, to try to get around calling it defamation to try to avoid like the anti slap statute. Um, and this is how uh, Judge Reed described it when he granted the motion to dismiss back on May 3rd of 2023. The crux of plaintiff Donald Trump's claim is that a reporter for The Times, Caused his niece, Mary Trump, to take 20-year-old tax and financial documents held by her lawyer and disclose them in violation of a 2001 settlement agreement. The Times it is alleged then used those documents to publish it, to publish a lengthy article in 2018 that reported that plaintiff had allegedly participated in dubious tax and other financial schemes during the 1990s. He did. In this action plaintiff does not specifically dispute the truth of any statements no made in the article rather
0: <laughs> plaintiff
8: alleges that the times Defendants' interaction with Mary Trump resulted in her breach of certain confidentiality provisions of the 2001 settlement agreement, rendering the Times and its journalists liable for tortious interference with contract, aiding and abetting tortious interference with contract, unjust enrichment, and or negligent supervision. Donald Trump demanded $100 million <laughs> in damages. So, what Alina Habba thought she was doing there. Um, and she's like, well, if we bring this as a defamation claim and call it defamation, then we are going to uh, be subject to New York's anti-slap statutes which prevent us from suing media companies when they're reporting things like this. So, cool, I've got this great idea. Let's not call it defamation. Let's call it tortious interference with contractual relations. Uh-huh. <laughs> then we can get around New York's anti-slab statute. And the court basically is like, I know what you did. You think that... Because you're calling your claim a different name, mm-hmm. the anti slap statute's not going to apply. Uh, apply. Mm-hmm. Well, it does. And here's okay. what Judge Reed wrote back on May yeah. Plaintiff's claims against the Times defendants as an initial matter fail as a matter of constitutional law. Mm-hmm. Courts have long mm-hmm. recognized mm-hmm. that reporters are entitled mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. engage in legal and ordinary news gathering activities without fear of tort liability, as these actions are at the very core of protected First Amendment activities. Plaintiff's claims also. fall fall short in as much as they fail to assert the necessary elements of tortious interference, unjust enrichment, and negligent supervision. More particularly, Plaintiff's tortious interference claim is dismissed because the Times' purpose in reporting on a story of high public interest constitutes justification as a matter of law. Plaintiff's unjust enrichment claim fails because it is duplicative of his other claims. His claim for negligent supervision, moreover, is dismissed due to the lack of any allegations that the Times' reporters committed any wrongful act falling outside the scope of their normal work duties. Finally, the newly amended anti-slap law mandates that plaintiffs pay attorneys' fees and costs because plaintiffs' claims plainly constitute a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And contrary to plaintiffs' argument, New York's anti-slap law is directed to more than just defamation-based lawsuits. You see... That's what I was saying that she was trying to do. the case, call something else, try to get around the law. No. The judge is like, no, Alina, you should have probably paid more attention to law school, and maybe you should have read the actual New York statutes and case law on this God. topic. Back in May, Alina Habba said when she lost, we'll weigh our client's options and continue to vigorously fight on his behalf. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, Alina Haba.